like for us to begin this morning in Psalm 149, second to last Psalm. the whole psalm. Verse 1, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, and His praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in His Maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their King. Let them praise His name with dancing. Let them sing praises to Him with timbrel and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Let the godly ones exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is an honor for all His godly ones. Praise the Lord. Jim Kelly, would you pray for us? Well, last Sunday, John gave uh, a wonderful message on the love of God. And what I wanted to do this morning is simply expand on the truth that he preached last week by considering with you again in a little bit more detail the nature of God's love for His people. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I fear that we can listen to a message like we heard last Sunday and we come away not getting help from it like we should because of wrong ideas that we have about the love of God. Specifically, we can often have the idea that God's love for us is somehow stingy or reluctant or forced or grudging as if He loves us because He has to and not because He wants to. We can view God's love like that of a mother you know, who goes on and on about all these bad things her child is doing and how the child is driving her nuts. And then at the very end, through clenched teeth, oh, but I love little Johnny, you know. <laughs> and we get the idea that that's what God's love for us is like. Is this the kind of love we're talking about when we talk about God's love for His people? And the answer is from Scripture, may it never be, God forbid. And as I hope you'll see this morning, such thinking is not only contrary to Scripture, but it's absolutely detrimental to the Christian life. And we'll see that here as we go along, I hope. And so the sermon this morning will be divided into three parts. First of all, uh, we'll look at several different verses that show us the nature of God's love for His people as consisting of pleasure, delight, and rejoicing in His people. And then secondly, we'll look at the foundation or the basis for this kind of love that God has for His people, which is justification and the work of Christ on our behalf. And then thirdly, at the very end, we'll answer the question, what difference does it make? I mean, why spend a whole other sermon here this morning talking about this? What's the point? So first of all, then, I want us to consider several passages of Scripture that will give us a feel for this truth And it's a glorious truth that God's love for us is full of pleasure and rejoicing and delight. And we'll start right here in Psalm 149. 
In verses 1 through 3, the people of Israel are called upon to do several different things. They're called upon to praise the Lord. They're called upon to sing to the Lord. They're called upon to be glad in Him, to rejoice in Him, to dance before Him, and to make music to Him. Why? Verse 4, for the Lord takes pleasure in His people. In other words, we are called upon to worship and take pleasure in the Lord because He takes pleasure in us. That's the logic. Now think about this phrase, takes pleasure. We all can understand what this means because we've all experienced it in our lives. We know what it's like to take pleasure in a cold drink of water when you're dying of thirst. You know what it's like to take pleasure in your favorite meal. You know what it's like to take pleasure in a phone call from a loved one, a sunset, hearing your favorite song on the radio. All of those things are pleasurable experiences. But the amazing thing is this, in the same way that these things give us pleasure and bring delight and joy and warmth to our hearts, in the same way God's people bring pleasure to Him. That's what it says. The Lord takes pleasure in His people. We see the same thing again in Isaiah 62. Let's turn there. Isaiah 62, 1 through 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married." For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Here Isaiah is prophesying about the restoration of Jerusalem. And we learn from the New Testament that Isaiah is ultimately prophesying about the church here. And he says this in verse 4. He says, It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, but you will be called my delight is in her, talking about the church. So God Himself gives the church a name. And this is the name that God Himself handpicks for the church to have. Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her. That's what God's view of the church is. And then He says later on in Isaiah 65, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The same idea. But back here in Isaiah 62, it gets even more amazing when we come down here to verse 5. As a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. One of the blessings of going to a wedding is seeing the bridegroom rejoice over the bride. To see the bridegroom up front as the bride is coming down the aisle and to see the smile on his face 
as, she, as she's coming down the aisle, to see the, the smile on his face as they leave hand in hand after the ceremony and they're heading out as husband and wife. It's one of the joys of being in attendance there at a wedding. That, that beaming face. I think of Andy and Rosanna's wedding. You know, I don't th for the whole month leading up to the wedding, I, I don't think I ever saw Andy not smiling. And we have husbands in this room who have been married a short time, some that have been married quite a long time, but I think we can all remember, at least we, I hope we can, the joy and the delight and the rejoicing in our new bride. It's a wonderful thing. But isn't it amazing that the Lord himself uses this same reality in order to teach us about his love for us. He says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. It does not say, and this is important, it does not say as the husband rejoices over his wife, so your God will rejoice over you. Now, why does it, say, why does it not say that? I think this is significant. Because what tends to happen naturally in a marriage is the rejoicing of the bridegroom over the bride tends to cool off a little bit as time goes on. Sorry to tell you that, ladies, but that's, that's true. It tends to cool off a little bit once you become husband and wife and the marriage goes on over time, right? But you see, this doesn't happen with God's rejoicing over us. It never cools off. It never tapers off. And so in order to illustrate for us God's rejoicing over his people, he picks the point in the marriage relationship when the rejoicing of the bridegroom over the bride is at its height, at the point of the wedding itself. That's the point that he picks to illustrate this. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so I will rejoice over you. He's saying, look, that is what my rejoicing over you is like. At the point in a human relationship when the rejoicing is at its maximum, that is what my rejoicing over you is like. A parallel passage to this is found in Jeremiah 32. Let's turn there next. I'm going to hit you with several verses here this morning because I want you to see that this is throughout Scripture. It's not just one or two verses. Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 36. <clears throat> now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul." So once again, we see this same truth in verse 41 here of God rejoicing over His people. But this adds something here at the end of the verse when it says that God will do this with all my heart and with all my soul. 
And if we put these two things together, what we have God saying to his people, I will rejoice over you with all my heart and with all my soul. He doesn't say some of my heart, some of my soul. He doesn't say most of my heart, most of my soul. He says all of my heart, all of my soul. He even repeats the all for emphasis here. We hear of athletes putting their heart and soul into an athletic contest. We hear that a lot right now with the Olympics going on. We hear of musicians putting their heart and soul into their music. And what do we mean when we say that? What we mean is that they give it everything that they have. They don't hold anything back. But we're not just talking about athletes or musicians here. We're talking about the all-powerful, infinite God of creation saying that He rejoices over His people with all of His heart and with all of His soul. Now, how many times in the Bible is God said to do something with all of His heart and all of His soul? I mean, maybe this comes up a lot and it's just not that big of a deal. How about creation? Does it say that God rejoiced with all of His heart and all of His soul when He created the universe? No, it doesn't say that. How about when he brought his people out of Egypt? Did he rejoice with all of his heart and all of his soul when he delivered his people from Egypt? It doesn't say that. How many times in the Bible does it say that God does something with all of his heart and all of his soul? One time. Right here, Jeremiah 32. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Another passage, Zephaniah 3, Zephaniah is a little book after Habakkuk and before Haggai in the Minor Prophets, Zephaniah 3. Verse 16, In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior, literally a warrior who saves. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Amazing. Out of all the passages that we've looked at so far, this might be the most amazing of them all. Verse 17, He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. The King James says, He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. He will joy over thee with singing. The ESV has something similar. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. No matter how you translate it, whether God is shouting or singing, this is a pretty incredible verse. In a sermon on this passage, Charles Spurgeon said this, Think of the great Jehovah singing. Can you imagine it? Is it possible to conceive of the deity breaking into a song? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost together singing over the redeemed. God is so happy in the love which He bears to His people that He breaks the eternal silence 
and sun and moon and stars with astonishment hear God chanting a hymn of joy. Among Orientals, a certain song is sung by the bridegroom when he receives his bride. It is intended to declare his joy in her and in the fact that his marriage has come. Here, by the pen of inspiration, the God of love is pictured as married to his church, and so rejoicing in her that he rejoices over her with singing. Now, there's an awful lot in the Bible about singing, but as far as I know, this is the only verse in the Bible that talks about God singing. And what's he singing about? He's singing over his people. He's singing about his people. He's rejoicing in his people. I mean, we we read right over stuff like this. It's like we're reading numbers in a phone book. God is singing over his people. That's what it says. This is the word of God to you and for you. One more line of evidence for this, this time from the New Testament. When we think of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, surely one thing that we can say for certain is that the love with which the Father loves the Son is a love consisting in pleasure, delight, and rejoicing. Paul says in Colossians 1.19 that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in Christ. It pleased the Father for the fullness of deity to dwell in His Son. And twice in the earthly life of Jesus, there came an audible voice from heaven as God the Father declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. If God rejoices over us, how much more does He rejoice over His Son, who is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature? But, lest we get the impression that the Father's love for His Son and the Son for the Father is something completely different, than their love for us. Consider these verses from John's Gospel. Let's turn to these. John 15. John 15, verse 9. Just as... Those two words. Just as... The Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. John 17, verse The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Jesus is praying here to his Father. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Just as, verse, or back in chapter 15, even as here in John 17, and then down in verse 26. Jesus says, I've made your name known to them, the disciples, and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So not only do we see the delight and joy of God and His people in the Old Testament, but we also see it here in the New Testament, particularly in John's Gospel, as Jesus says that the love between God the Father and God the Son is the same 
love. It's the same kind of love, the same quality of love that they have for us. It's a love that rejoices, that shouts, that even sings over every child of God. But it's at this point, usually, <laughs> that a question starts to come up in our minds. How, how can this be? How can these things be? How is it possible for the infinitely holy creator of the universe to rejoice over a finite, sinful human being? How is it possible? Doesn't God hate all who do iniquity, as Psalm 5, five says? Isn't he a righteous judge who has indignation every day? Psalm 7.11. Are not his eyes too pure to look at evil? Habakkuk 1.13. So how can we reconcile these things? And so what I want to move into now is the second part of the message. When we think about here the ground or the basis for God's delight in His people. How can a holy and righteous God rejoice over unholy and unrighteous people? How can He? And the answer is, He can't. He can't. And He doesn't. Now listen to me. God cannot rejoice over unholy and unrighteous people, and He doesn't rejoice over unholy and unrighteous people. What am I saying? God rejoices over His saints, His holy ones. That's what saint means. Every Christian is a saint. He rejoices over His saints who stand before Him as righteous on the basis of the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the basis or the grounds upon which God can delight and His people and rejoice over them with shouts of joy is the doctrine of justification. And that's what we want to consider next. What is justification? First of all, let's think about the word itself. The word justify means declare righteous. To declare righteous. It's a legal term taken from the courtroom of law. When a judge justifies someone, he's declaring that that accused person is right or righteous in the eyes of the law. Or to say it another way, when the judge justifies someone, he is making a declaration that the accused person has in fact done what the law requires. As Paul says in Romans 2.13, the doers of the law will be justified. But here's the problem. Not a single person here this morning, or anywhere in the world for that matter, has ever done that. As Paul says later in Romans, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Not only have we not kept the law of God, of loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. But we've actually broken the law countless times in our sin and rebellion. We stand as guilty criminals before the bar of God's unswerving, perfectly holy justice. The Bible says the wrath of God abides, it sits on us because of our sin. And if you are not a Christian here this morning, that is exactly where you are standing. The wrath of God is abiding on you because of your sin. But it's right here that the glory of the good news, the gospel, meets us head on. Where sin abounds, Paul says, grace does much more abound. God so loved the objects of His wrath, 
that He gives His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Like we sung about this morning, there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. How does He accomplish this for us? How does He save us from our sins? First of all, as Peter says, 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus bears our sins in His body on the cross. And that is an incredible verse. When you're explaining the gospel to somebody, keep that verse in mind. He bears sin in His body on the cross. As Isaiah says in chapter 53, now listen to the exchange here. Surely our griefs He bore. Our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. Over and over again, you see. By His scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So the Lord Jesus willingly takes all of our sins. He takes all of our transgressions of God's law upon himself and suffers the wrath of God against those sins on the cross in our behalf. Charles Wesley said, he wrote this in a hymn, "'Tis finished, the Messiah dies, cut off for sins, but not his own. Accomplished is the sacrifice, the great redeeming work is done. Tis finished, all the debt is paid. Justice divine is satisfied, the grand and full atonement made. God for a guilty world hath died.'" Another hymnist wrote, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. You see, not just half of your sins, not just three-fourths of your sins, all of your sins. The whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So one side of the coin of justification is this thing of Christ paying for our sins, bearing our sins. Our sins were not simply winked at, they weren't simply swept under the rug, but they were actually paid for in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God has been satisfied on our behalf. But justification is even more full and wonderful than that. Not only did the Lord Jesus die for our sins, but He lived to be our righteousness. Not only did He pay for our transgressions of God's law, but He actually obeyed the law of God in our place by living a life of perfect love to God and perfect love to man. He's the only person who's ever lived who truly loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and his fellow man as himself. And it's this record of perfect righteousness that's given to us as the basis of our justification. Remember, justification means declare righteous. I like the way John Piper explained this. It's kind of a heavy quote, but you can get this. Listen carefully. In His mercy, God has provided His Son as a twofold substitute for us, 
Both facets of Christ's substitution are crucial for our becoming right with God. These facets are grounded in the twin facts that, one, we have failed to keep God's law perfectly and so we should die, but two, Jesus did not fail. He alone has kept God's law perfectly and so he should not have died. Yet, in his mercy, God has provided in Christ a great substitution, a blessed exchange, according to which Jesus can stand in for us with God, offering his perfect righteousness in place of our failure and his own life's blood in place of ours. When we receive the mercy God offers us in Christ by faith, his perfection is imputed or credited to us. And our sinful failure is imputed or credited to him. And thus, Jesus' undeserved death pays for our sin. And God's demand for us to be perfectly righteous is satisfied by the crediting of Christ's perfect righteousness to us. Paul says, Romans 5.19, Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Through the obedience of the one the Lord Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And perhaps the best summary of justification in the entire Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him, God the Father made God the Son, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And this is the heart of the gospel. This is the answer to how a holy and righteous God can rejoice over unholy and unrighteous people. He can do so because He takes sinners, pays for their sins, and clothes them. I love that language that the Bible uses. Clothes them in the perfect righteousness of His Son. And on that basis, He justifies them. He declares them to be righteous. And the judgment of God is according to truth, Paul says in Romans 2. God's not pretending anything when he justifies you. He's looking at you and he's seeing righteousness. That's why he declares you to be righteous, because you are in the eyes of his law. Your sins have been paid for. The righteousness of Christ is counted to your account. You are justified. Now, just as he, now this is amazing, Just as he was able to look down at the Lord Jesus Christ and say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, so he is able to look down on you as a Christian. And he's able to say, this is my beloved Son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And what God has cleansed, let no man, including yourself, call unclean. Well, I want to begin wrapping up here by pulling some things together. Um, I had said earlier that the ground or the basis of God's rejoicing and delighting in us is our justification, that He declares us righteous. That God declares us righteous on the basis of the blood and righteousness of Christ. And by doing so, He's now able to rejoice over us with shouts of joy. But what I want us to see now is that I didn't say that simply because it's logically true, though it is, but I said it because the very contexts of the verses that we looked at earlier demand that. And here's what I mean. Let's turn back to Isaiah 62. 
I mean, it's nice to talk about justification being the basis of God's rejoicing over us, but where is it at in these verses that we started with this morning about God rejoicing over His people? Where is it at in the context of those passages? In Isaiah 62, we had read particularly in verse 5, As a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Now, look back a few verses. Chapter 61, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for... He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So right there in the very context of Isaiah 62.5, we have the truth of justification. Isaiah 61.10. God has clothed you with this robe of Christ's righteousness. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him my living head and what? Clothed with righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Another hymn, Jesus thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. You see, these hymn writers said this kind of stuff for a reason. And just make it up, it comes from Scripture. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. When everything else is falling down around you, you're able to lift up your head with joy because of this robe of righteousness. This spotless robe the same appears when ruined nature sinks in years. No age can change its glorious hue. The robe of Christ is ever new. And you remember that when you wake up tomorrow morning and you're facing another week at school or another week at work or whatever. The robe of Christ is ever new, never fading, never changing. So right here in this very passage, we see that the basis of God rejoicing over us as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride is justification. Another passage, Jeremiah 32. Let's turn to there. Earlier we had emphasized verse 41, I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. But in the verse right before that, verse 40, God speaks of this everlasting covenant that He will make with His people. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. Now, what is he talking about here? What is this everlasting covenant that he's talking about in verse 40? And that forms the basis of verse 41, rejoicing over them to do them good. We'll turn back one chapter. Jeremiah 31. What is this everlasting covenant? Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And this passage, just to stop right there, this passage is quoted in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews twice to show us that ultimately he's talking about the church here. The house of Israel and the house of Judah is the church when we come to the New Testament, fulfilled by the church. So this is a covenant that we are a part of as Christians. Verse 33, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For, here it is, I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So this passage, again, is quoted in the book of Hebrews as referring to the covenant that God makes with all Christians. And what is one thing, what's one of the things promised in this covenant? Justification. Right there it is, verse 34. There, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And that forms the basis in Jeremiah 32 then of God being able to rejoice over us to do us good with all of his heart and with all of his soul. Now, this is helpful because you might be sitting there this morning as a Christian and you're, th- and you're thinking, you know, I can kind of see this thing of, of God rejoicing over me when I'm walking in obedience, but what happens when I mess up and sin? Then what happens? Does the singing stop then? Does the rejoicing stop then? And God answers and says, your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. It's a promise. You say, okay, Lord, but what about... A week from now? What about a month from now? What about a year from now? What about the sins that I'll commit next year? Will the rejoicing and the singing stop then? And God says again, your sins and your iniquities, I will remember no more. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account ever again. Now you can see why you can see why Paul was slandered when he preached the gospel. People thought he was saying, "Well, let's do evil that good may come. Let's sin that grace might abound because this is the reality of it, beloved. The sins that you will commit from here on out are covered. They're forgotten, they're forgiven, they're paid for. They're gone. Their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more." Do we really believe that? That's the gospel. And if the gospel you preach doesn't lead people to question you the same way they question Paul, then maybe you're not preaching the gospel, the biblical, the true biblical gospel, full and free justification once for all. All right, Zephaniah 3. We're winding down here. We had focused earlier in Zephaniah 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. But go back up to verse 14. Same chapter, verse 14. 
Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. So right here again in verse 15, the Lord has taken away His judgments against you. How can God sing over His people? Justification. The judgments of God against your sin have been taken away. They're gone. His judgments against you have been taken away. That's the basis. Nailed to the cross of Christ. So once again here we see that the foundation of God's rejoicing in us is the doctrine of justification, the work of Christ. How strong of a foundation is this? It's as sure and as strong as the finished work of Christ itself. The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. Two things in conclusion then. First of all, what difference does this make? I mean, why, again, why spend an entire message after John already gave such a good message last week on the love of God? Why spend a whole other message on this topic? The reason is simple, and it's also profoundly important, and it's this. Your perception of what God is like drastically affects every area of your Christian life. Let me say that once again, because this is, you've got to get this. Your perception of what God is like drastically affects every area of your Christian life. If you have the idea that God's love for you is somehow forced or coerced or grudging or whatever, it will turn your prayer life into drudgery, Bible study becomes a chore, and acts of obedience become a legalistic attempt to earn God's favor. On the other hand... If you're grounded in the doctrine of justification, and you all should be because you've all read Charles's book, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> if you haven't, read it. If you're grounded in the doctrine of justification and you know that God rejoices over you with shouts of joy, not on the basis of what you've done or ever can do, but on the basis of what Christ has done once for all, then you have a massive, rock-solid foundation underneath of you that makes you want to pray. It makes you long for communion with God in His Word. And it makes you want to be obedient to His commands out of love for Him because of His love for you. It changes everything. So that's why this is important. And I know, I mean, one of the things the devil does all the time, he did it way back at the beginning, right? What was, he t what was he telling Adam and Eve? God is really not as good as he says he is. We talked about this on, in the Wednesday night studies, the small group studies. One of the big slanders that, that the devil is constantly bringing up against the Lord is that he's really not as good as he says he is. And it all, it all, this all comes back to that. The devil will slander you about these things, about God's character, about what he's like, about how he feels about you. See, we can go on and on all day long about what we think of the Lord Jesus Christ and what we think of God. But when I ask you, what does God think about you? What does the Lord Jesus think about you? It gets a little bit harder, right? What does it say in Hebrews? I didn't plan on turning here, but let me read these to you because these are helpful to me. And I'll just read these for you here. 
In Hebrews 2, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, For both he who sanctifies, for those of you taking notes, this is 2.11, Hebrews 2.11, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So there's the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed to own you. I'm not ashamed to have my name, Christian, Christ, attached to you. That's what he's saying. And then again in Hebrews 11, verse 16, But as it is, they desire a better country, talking about some of these Old Testament saints, They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Literally, God is not ashamed of them to be their God. God is not ashamed of them to be their God. So there it is again. It's the negative side of what we've already seen this morning. Not only does God rejoice over you with shouts of joy, but He says, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed to own you. I'm not ashamed to have my name attached to you as a believer. So this is why this is important. It affects every area of your Christian life. Secondly, in closing, I want to say something to the Christian who's heard this message but just isn't feeling it. (laughs) And maybe that's you this morning. You're depressed, you're discouraged. Whatever the case might be, instead of hearing God singing over you, you feel like He's a thousand miles away. And even if you're not in that place this morning, you know what that's like to be in that place. And what I want to say is this. Go back to the gospel. Go back to the doctrine of full and free justification by faith alone. Go back to the foundation. Remember, the foundation of all of these things is justification. And so if you're not hearing the voice of God singing over you like you should, go back to the foundation. Go back to the finished work of Christ, that He justifies you on the basis of what Christ has done. And to help you do that, I want to close this morning with another Spurgeon quote, one of my favorites. This this comes from Morning and Evening. It's the morning meditation for April 4th. And it's on 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we read earlier. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this is what Spurgeon says. Mourning Christian, why do you weep? Are you mourning over your own corruptions? Look to your perfect Lord and remember you are complete in him. You are in God's sight as perfect as if you had never sinned. Nay, more than that, the Lord, our righteousness, has put a divine garment upon you so that you have more than the righteousness of man. You have the righteousness of God. O you who are mourning by reason of inbred sin and depravity, remember, none of your sins can condemn you. You have learned to hate sin, but you have learned also to know that sin is not yours. It was laid upon Christ's head. Your standing is not in yourself, It is in Christ. Your acceptance is not in yourself, but in your Lord. 
You are as much accepted of God today with all of your sinfulness as you will be when you stand before his throne, free from all corruption. Oh, I beseech you, lay hold of this precious thought, perfection in Christ, for you are complete in him. With your Savior's garment on, you are holy as the Holy One. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Christian, let your heart rejoice, for you are accepted in the Beloved. What have you to fear? Let your face ever wear a smile. Live near your Master. Live in the suburbs of the celestial city. For soon, when your time has come, you shall rise up where your Jesus sits and reign at his right hand. And all of this because the divine Lord was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Be hard to say it any better than that. But, beloved, it's as we begin to stand on these things, these truths, that we learn the truth of what Nehemiah said, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. His joy in us is our strength. Amen.